Thank you. All right. Later. Um, let me get it started. Um, we're kind of closing the, the topic of, uh, well, depending if I go too long and I might have to continue the following Sunday, but we are concluding the topic of abuse, domestic abuse, um, and other forms of abuse. So it's not a, an easy um, task, not very easy even to identify. Um, you guys were able to watch some counseling sessions and how difficult it is. Um, I remember when I first started doing my training and uh, one of the first couples that I was assigned to counsel, I, it didn't have that on their information when they asked for counseling. And um, trying to navigate through those waters was very hard because they were not part of my church, they were in a different church, so having to contact their pastors and different things was a very um, difficult challenge. But the Lord has helped, and, and one of the resources that really helped was the one that you guys were able to watch these past uh, few weeks. So you feel benefit, benefited from that exposure. And, you know, if there is a topic, as it says there in the introduction, of all the social problems confronted by the church, domestic violence is surely one of the most misunderstood and mismanaged by church leaders. And um, it, it is sad to say that, um, but I have seen it, and I think we, we need to be on guard. I'm thankful that Grace has a good uh, way of managing and, and even preventing abuse from happening with our children, um, but not how many churches have that blessing. And so let's come to the Lord in prayer, uh, just asking that he will help us to navigate through these things, the uh, the dynamics of abuse, some of the things are kind of going to be kind of a review for you because you have been listening to Dylan and Eric, and um, I'm sure they covered a lot of the things that I already uh, going to talk about here. But let's um, ask the Lord's blessing of our time here. Gracious Father, thank you for um, your word, which is sufficient for us. And thank you for being a God that cares, a God who sees, and that you have called out a people to yourself to be your body, your hands and feet in this world, and that we might proclaim the glories and the excellencies of Christ, this broken world. Lord, we know that this is one of the areas that is so touchy <clears throat> and hard for us to um, talk to people that have suffered greatly. But I do pray, Father, that we would learn um, ways that we can encourage them and that we can point them to a better way than this world has to offer. We're thankful, and we ask your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so definitions, is, it's really hard when it comes to abuse because we are in a generation where, um, yes, we do know it is present. Um, it's something, it, those type of things happen um, all the time. But at the same time, um, there is running parallel that everyone now is being abused. 
if you disagreed with me, you are abusing me. (laughs) If you don't um, do what I am asking, you are abusing me. And so there is just so many facets to that. And I I think we, we just need to have that balanced biblical view as how does God seize these things um, and not simply how the world defines these things. Um, a lot of what i gotten from here um, is from the book When Home Hurts, A Guide for Responding Wisely to Domestic Abuse in Your Church by Jeremy Pierre and Greg Wilson. You will remember Jeremy Pierre. Uh, remember Travis on the videos? Like that was not a real... He was enacting that. So Jeremy Pierre is a professor of biblical counseling at Southern Seminary, and um, he, he wrote this book very, very good. And I think it, it really, a lot of what I'm bringing here today was uh, based off of his research. So he says, terms like abuse, abuser, victim, or survival, survivor, each have a variety of meanings in domestic abuse literature. These terms can be helpful, but only as circumstantial identifiers, not as core identities. One of the major issues for both people that are being abused, or the abusers, as they say, um, is that there is a problem in identity. They really are discharacterized who they really are. And so helpful uses of these terms are simply circumstantial descriptions. It it describes what's happening in the moment um, of a person in relation to the abuse that occurred. But unhelpful uses are identifiers that define a person entirely. And where I'm trying to get at with this is that a person that have been abused now is labeled with uh, being a victim. And they're going to be a victim for the rest of their lives. Even after years and years have passed. They were called a survivor. So they only define the entire life of that person based on that trauma or that abuse that had occurred. Then for instance, a victim is a person um, on the receiving end of the abuse and therefore suffering direct effects of the harmful actions of another. And yet, her entirety, entire identity is not captured by this term. Um, Jeremy says here, insofar as this term helps a person understand what occurred to her and the consequences on her life, it is helpful. But insofar it becomes the inalterable center of her identity, it is unhelpful. Christ did not come to uh, leave us the way we are. He came to redeem us, to forgive us, to give us a new life. So an abuser, on the other hand, is the one giving the end of the abuse and therefore responsible for the harmful effects and that he inflicts on others. And yet, his entire identity is not captured by this term either. Insofar as this term alerts a person to the extremity of his behavior and the corrupted heart behind it, it is helpful. It, it, it points to us. But insofar it becomes a sweeping dismissal of his personhood, it is unhelpful. People, um, and some of, we talk about male being the the perpetrator most of the times because statistically that's uh, more common. 
doesn't mean that women never become the abuser, um, but it is not very common. And yet, we don't characterize people as uh, beasts or brutes, though they might be expressing themselves in these situations in such a cruel manner that we, we see them as this way. And so we, we need to have definitions that help us to think biblically, not just what the world uses these terms in, in, a, in a flippant manner. I mean, I think about the Apostle Paul. Talk about an abuser. Saul of Tarsus, persecuting the church, killing believers, torturing them. All sorts of things. And yet, was Paul forever an abuser? No. He became the apostle of grace, a man that was forgiven by God and that was teaching love and how to love and giving even his own life for the church that he so much persecuted. And so let's start with what um, is not then. We are not merely attempting to define domestic abuse as a key word or even a theme of scripture. As if scripture describes domestic abuse somewhere, if we just... um, hunt for it hard enough. Since the term domestic abuse is not in the scripture, we may, not be, we may be tempted to look for the closest analogous terms, then piece together scripture's supposed description of domestic violence. Terms used in the scripture such as violence, oppression, harm, unfaithfulness, and sin can be used to illuminate aspects of domestic abuse. But none of these terms captured the entirety of the experience of domestic abuse. They weren't meant to. So we will see some Proverbs, for instance, that will describe some of these behaviors. But really, the point of Scripture is not to define every case scenario of abuse, but to talk about the simple heart of man that leads them to act in that way. So a few things that I appreciate that Jeremy put in his book is um, the, how the image of God is, is distorted. It's displayed, um, the image of God which is displayed in our capacity both to perceive the world as persons and to influence one another as persons. There's things to consider. We have to consider sin, which disorders this design warping both the ability to perceive the world rightly and to relate to others righteously. Uh, both the abuser and the abused will have those things distorted for them. Definition of love, which is God's design for purpose for human relationships. It is the building up of another person at the cost, of not, uh, at the cost to self, which is precisely the opposite of abuse. Then we have the concept of oppression, which is not just a generic suffering, but a unique form of suffering involving the intentional sin of those with greater capacity against those with less. And the last concept is marriage, which is God's arrangement for a man and for a woman to live out an exclusive form of love in which husband leads in sacrificing sacrificing his interest for his wife who follows him in freedom and not in bondage. 
So a uh, definition that I got from uh, that book was that abuse occurs as a person in position of greater influences, greater influence uses his personal capacities to diminish the personal capacities of those under his influence in order to control them. Because God made people as embodied souls, these personal capacities are both physical and spiritual. Abuse is identified from two directions. One, there is the manipulative intent and behavioral forcefulness of the one in a position of influence. And then on the second um, side of things is the diminishing effect of those under their influence. So I just want to take a moment here um, and, and think about you all have your jobs, you have to go through training every now and then about prevention of sexual harassment and, and different things. And I, I just wanted to hear from you uh, what, what do you encounter as you do those trainings required by your jobs? What, what do you hear that you feel like, mm, this, is, this is good, I see the good intent of them doing this, but something seems off. What, what is that you, you have identified? If you may share. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the matter of perception is, is very, very important. Because for the abuser, in his perception, this is not abusive. This is loving. This is care. And it, it, it is nothing to do with, with love. And on the other hand, there are those that are in situations, as I said, right, that um, are not really, you disagreed with me, you didn't like the color of my car, I'm feeling abused. <laughs> uh, that, that is the other extreme, right? And I think that really devalues the people that are truly suffering from um, um, the real things, right? Any other thoughts, examples on that? Um, I do remember, um, even at the seminary, because the state of California required us to uh, take those trainings, you know, on sexual harassment, which I thought it was very valuable, um, you know, to prevent incidents at a workplace where some things that you do without realizing might be perceived as, as a form of harassment. But at some point, um, the, the state of California decided that um, if a male um, claims to be pregnant, um, you have to take that as face value. And they might get a leave of absence. They have all those things. And I was just shocked because I was answering the questions. was like, absolutely not. Like, how could you? But you don't even ask. You don't have to ask for an examination. <laughs> it's just... What in the world? What world are we living in? And it's just what really disturbs me is because it really devalues those that are truly suffering, people that truly experience traumatic um, circumstances. Abuse involves power and control. Um, an abuser exerts improper power control over another human at the person's direct expense. The abuser directly or significantly sins against the victim. Abuse fails to treat image bearers with dignity and honor, and it often involves pain and manipulation. 
This is from um, our textbook that we have been using for this course, The Gospel for Disordered Lives. And they list here um, different forms, and it's not exhaustive, and it's not covering every single area, but there are physical forms. There's bodily harm, such as hitting, punching, or biting, uh, pulling hair, um, sexual touching offenses, such as rape or molestation. And then there are non-physical forms, such as verbal attacks, such as name-calling, insults, demeaning speech, attempts to manipulate or to coerce uh, for personal gain to the expense of the other, distortions of religious teaching to elevate self, demean another, and demand submission. And I, I think for the, this one was what shocked me the most. I remember as a, as a new believer, um, 12-year-old little me, thinking uh, the world, the, the church is just this wonderful place <laughs> where uh, people do everything right, they live by the book, and they walk with the Lord. And I, I had an idyllic, um, uh, maybe because that's, that's Christ's expectation for the church, I thought people really live this out. And, and the more I grew in my faith and I started looking around, uh, we got to see um, in our church, uh, a perpetrator, a, a guy that was uh, grooming young boys. Um, I was one that they, he started, and praise the Lord, nothing happened to me. But um, it, it was some things that I couldn't believe. How is this possible inside of the church? And it, you would hear of, of, of domestic violence and you would think, well, believers do fear the Lord. They know, they understand that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? But no, Scripture is many times used, and I have helped guys to see they didn't realize that they were using Scripture as a weapon to batter their wives, to manipulate and get what they wanted. It, it was just horrific. And... At the same time, it, the, spirit of, the Spirit of God is so powerful to bring conviction and to bring that enlightenment to say, wow, this is God's word and I have been using it in this wicked way. Um, so praise God for that. But it is something that really shocked me in my Christian walk. And I think for us, for those of you here, it, it's helpful to understand it is possible. And we need to be on the lookout, to be an encouragement to others. And really to uh, say that Scripture is not a weapon, right? Scripture is the Word of God for our growth. It is the milk that makes us grow. It is a sword to fight error, <laughs> including the error of distorting Scripture. And then the last one here, non-physical, the sexual or non-touching offenses, such as verbal sexual comments or forced observations. So there are many other forms of, of physical abuse. Uh, for instance, someone might not necessarily be violent, but they might be negligent or failing to provide food um, or clothing, or shelter, or medical care for their kids, or for their spouse. 
Um, there's no injury to the, the child required necessarily, but there's, when there ever, whenever there is a severe neglect that can lead to malnutrition, for instance, a, a drunken father, father or a drug-enslaved parent, there's willfully causing or permitting of a child to suffer unjustifiable physical pain or mental suffering or allowing the child's health to be endangered. And then there is obviously sexual abuse, any tricked, forced, manipulated, coerced sexual activity for the pleasure of the abuser. And then even from child to child, that is a possibility. And so it, th this is the world that we are uh, living in. We, we don't want to be oblivious to that. Um, how about we open our Bibles and just look at different um, scriptures that... We will describe some of these scenarios or these behaviors. Again, this is not exhaustive of all of what a scripture says, but just a few that um, give us this hint of what is going on. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 31. And I would like volunteers, otherwise I'm going to voluntold. Voluntile people. <laughs> Proverbs 3.31, if someone can stand up and read that for us. Thank you. So there are certain ways they are violent, and we get the warning not to um, follow that way or to envy that uh, man of violence. Proverbs 6 and 16 to 19. Mm -hmm. I think that one just described a lot of aspects that happen in a, in a dynamic of abuse, right? Haughty eyes, the, the prideful thought, view of self, of self-importance, of self-rights. You broke my rights. I have every right to punish you for this. Inflated view of self. The lying tongue. Uh, that is manipulating, not saying it's real reason. It will say something, but in their hearts, they devise something else for their own advantage. Hands that shed innocent blood in a heart that devised wicked, wicked plans. So, another one is Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11. Where mm, some translations say a angry man attain riches, right? Uh, people there are, that normally have that behavior, they're very successful because they're able to manipulate and, and make their way in um, things, in places of exercising his powerful influence. Um, and I, I really appreciate um, that there's this whole contrast here in Proverbs. Proverbs was written for young people, for them to, to warn them of the dangers of this world. It was Solomon, really, trying to train his children to walk with God. And, you know, we, we read sometimes things, and, uh, you know, the constant, the, the woman that likes fighting is like the constant dripping. You're probably familiar with that proverb. And, 
And, and we think on terms like, oh yeah, it sucks to be married to someone like that. The, the point of, of that proverb was not to say, well, it sucks that this happens. It's to warn the young people, do you see women that like arguing like that? Don't go for it. Do you see men that already have this kind of manipulative and angry behavior? Don't go for it. It's to warn them of, of their future spouses as well. To warn them to not fall into impurity, into sexual immorality, and to walk with the Lord. And to value what he values. All right, so a little digression here, but let's keep moving. The 17, someone... I think this proverb just, it, like many other parts of Scripture, talks about how evil um, often comes back to bite itself. Um, especially, you know, if, if you're talking about believers, uh, the Lord will discipline his children, and the Lord will protect his children. He will bring cer- hard circumstances, and, the, and, and these people that um, they are abusive, they are cruel, in their behavior. So another one, uh, 12 verse 18. I think this one is also helpful. Um, I know that people, I think there's a a whole emphasis of trying to categorize different types of abuse, verbal abuse and whatnot. And and some, it's not as bad as, right, the, the violence, but you saw in the case of Travis on how the children were, that affected the behavior of the children, affected the response of the wife. And um, Proverbs 13, uh, 12, 18, someone can read that one for us. There's a contrast there between a, a, a tongue that brings healing but there is a tongue that hurts, that hurts like a wound, a, a mortal wound, like a thrust of a sword. And, and many times, I, I, I just want to, you don't have to raise your hand, but just, just think back of things that y- you heard that was very hurtful. It's very hard to forget, isn't it? Even if the person asks for forgiveness, even if the person... There is something about our words that hit and, and hurt more than any physical uh, behavior. So um, Proverbs 31, 8, 9 talks about um, the oppressed. Mm-hmm. So the, um, some translations use the uh, rights of the oppressed. And, um, and I think it's just kind of obvious. If God cares about people that are oppressed, the people that are suffering, how much should we? How much should we have compassion on them? And how much we would like to present God? Because many times their vision and then perception of God is so twisted that they need that help, someone that will plead their cause. And then the last one, we're going to go back to chapter 3. And I, I, last that one, I left that one for less. 
because it um, abuse normally happens from those that are closest uh, to the victim. And that's why it makes it so hard to navigate. 2930, can someone read that for us? Chapter 3, 2930. So um, it is so hard because that, that's the person that a parent, someone that we trust, that you listen to. And sometimes they are the ones perpetrating that, the sexual abuse. They, they trust their words. They're the one that explain the world to you. And what a wicked thing is to explain the world in a twisted manner. Um, David talks about his betrayal. We're going to be studying a lot of David's now persecution from Saul. And what was so hard for him is this is a person that I trusted to, that I served, that I was playing music to. If it was someone that was distant, an enemy of God, a Philistine that was persecuting me, I would be fine with that. But it is you, my close companion. He says that in one of the Psalms. That's why it's so hurtful. It's because someone that came from um, close to those things. All right, so any questions so far here? Uh, we're just giving a broad picture kind of thing. Comments so far? All right. Let's move on to the dynamics of abuse in light of Scripture. Well, one of the things that we need to realize is that um, abuse, when we're dealing with abuse, we're considering two major things. Now, I, I feel like the, the public counseling movement, sometimes it goes one way in one direction and then goes all the way in the, and swing the pendulum, that everything now is a sin. Everything is a sin, and, and you just have to repent from a sin. So if you're experiencing traumatic experiences, you just have to repent, and then, you know, and that'll be fine. And there's the other pendulum that, you know, they're just sufferers. They're not culpable for anything. And understand me, I'm not saying that someone that have been abused are to be um, guilty and to feel guilty about what someone else did wrong to them. They shouldn't. But at the same time, that person is accountable before God for anything else that she or he does. That doesn't ex The fact that they were a victim or that they survived something doesn't mean that now God is going to give them a blank card to sin the way they want, to live the way they want. And so we're dealing here with people that are both sinners and sufferers. Both of those things. We do have such a thing as unrighteous suffering. I mean, think about Job. Did he do anything to deserve that treatment, to lose all his family, to lose his wife? Yes, in a sense, we all deserve hell, right? But at the same time, um, the Lord was bringing that trial to test him and to grow him in his faith. And so we have to look at these dynamic in thinking that people as both sinners and sufferers, they are actively responding to things. They're not just passive uh, victims. So that's why he says here, um, Keith Palmer, I can maybe send the link of his lecture later, 
Uh, I thought it was very helpful. He's a TMS graduate that has done a lot of counseling in this area of abuse, and, and he has some really good insights. And by the way, the podcast, um, the recent podcast from Truth and Love, the, from the Association of Biblical Counselors, recently talked about trauma and trauma-informed care, some of those things that are very, very helpful for us to, to, to be aware that is going on in the world. And even from a, a professional standpoint, you're going to face that terminology, trauma-informed care, pretty much everywhere that you go now. All right, so we're thinking about active responders versus passive victims. Abuse doesn't create identity problems, but it does significantly influence how a fallen or even a redeemed fallen person will think of herself who is already prone to misjudgments about herself. Jeremiah 17.9 says what? Our hearts are wickedly and, and deceitful, right? What are some things that people that might suffer abuse might experience? Might, they might have a, a twisted view about themselves. What are some things that you think people might think wrongly about themselves as they suffer abuse? Any, any thoughts? Mm -hmm. They just are so trusting of everything that is told them and they don't question that. Mm-hmm. What else? Mm. You might be afraid of, of speaking up and, and telling others. I just think this this should be I, I have to hide this. This is my own issue and I I, I don't need anyone to be involved. Um, sometimes forgetting what they were like before the abuse. They totally discharacterize. They don't remember how, what was life before that kind of um, scenario. Uh, feeling like everything is their fault or constantly questioning uh, motives of everyone. Well, I couldn't trust this one person. Now I can't trust anybody else. So they become very cynical about life in general. Identity is solely based on a relationship with the abuser. I have no identity apart from this person. Without that person, I cannot live. So just different uh, things that cross their mind. Feeling like you, you aren't okay and that need change. There's always something to be working on, and we do. But it, it, they're constantly looking for something. Rejecting, uh, rejecting your own self-protection, you think you must rely on the abuser for what is true. That's what Eric was saying, that they believe their definitions, the abuser's definition, and not. Feeling like you're losing touch with reality, that's another thing that goes through them. And feeling guilty or full of shame, feeling dirty, constantly bad about things. Feeling like you have to be perfect to stop the abuse. They're still thinking somehow this was caused by me and so feeling like um, they are whatever lies they believe feeling alone feeling afraid feeling fearful and terror feeling like no one understands or care feeling like the world is out of control sometimes denying what happens so these are just a few ways that people um, deal with that and then um, the third point here is that 
we are dealing with both inner and outer man problems. We, we understand that there are things that were affected spiritually, their concept of God, their concept of sin, their concept of the human nature has been twisted, but there are also some complications with the body, people that have constant anxiety. They might suffer from ulcers. They might have other complications. So identity issues are largely cognitive perceptions of oneself thinking based upon evaluations. These thoughts influenced by beliefs, desires, and expectations and experiences. We know, obviously, that there is the, the physical harm that is done to someone, but even if there is no physical harm, some emotional abuse or verbal abuse will cause someone to, to just go into downward spiral where they're not eating well, they're just suffering all different things that affects their body. Traumatic experiences often connected inner men perceptions with outer men experiences. Thus, a person is struggling with identity issues may have many physical elements to her struggle. One of the things that I, I was helping a counselee to see, that was a man that I was counseling, is that he didn't understand why his spouse was still so afraid of him. Like, I don't know now what to do. And this is like years have passed. And praise the Lord, he restored that relationship and they're uh, together and safe. And praise the Lord, their relationship is doing well. But he, he had a hard time understanding why, but it's so long. And, you know, I, I'm already deeply grieved by what I've done, but yet. And so Pro I brought him to Proverbs 18, verse 19. And it says, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a citadel. The constant threats that that husband made, the punching of walls, that had a cumulative effect on his, on his wife and even his children's understanding of what a father was like and what, a, what God is like, really. They were constantly in fear. So they started building these protections. Oh, daddy's coming home. I got to hide. I got to do this. They keep putting up these walls and these walls of protection because I want to protect myself as much as I can. I can't prevent many things, but at least these I will try to keep control. So there is a cumulative effect in one's soul and body that we need to be aware of and that will take time to regain. It's not impossible. It's just saying that it's harder to be won than a strong city. It's not impossible. Through the grace of Christ, that can be overcome. But yet, we should be aware that it is not something easy. Now, I do want to give you just the warning. I'm not going to go too much in depth into it. Maybe I'll just send you the link of the lecture about trauma-informed care. Is that... Um, and it's a fad now, even in the midst of evangelical churches. Uh, the psychology book is it's named um, The Body Keeps the Score. And it's basically talking about the physical effects that um, trauma will have in someone's body and someone's mind, which to an extent I totally agree. Uh, but the way that he, f he writes things is very anecdotal not to say that they were lies, but they're stories. 
There is no scientific base that proves what brains can that shows how the brain of a person that was traumatized is. And, and, and I have talked about this before. As a pharmacist, I, I, I hate when people manipulate science to make whatever they want, right? Remember that I showed you the brain of an alcoholic and then the a brain of a person who was not an alcoholic and say, yo, you see the difference? They have something in their brain, of course. I'm like, well, do you have a, a brain scan of this person before he got exposed to alcohol, before they got addicted to alcohol? No, we don't. Oh, so you can't really compare because this brain is not like this brain. They're different. And so in the same way, with people that are suffering trauma. So in, in the podcast, um, a psychiatrist is a doctor, and I think he's a molecular um, biologist. I don't know. He is a very, I mean, high-end PhD that works with patients with trauma, and they're doing brain scans and all that stuff. He's very <laughs> an expert in this area, and he gave warnings against those, that book. You know, those stories might be heartfelt and they might help you to alert for the implications that trauma has in one's body. But there's a lot of that, there's no scientific base to it. And, and it might be misleading for people. So, and the other thing that is getting into the church is a form of treatment, right? And EMDR, I don't know how many of you have heard of this EMDR, EMDR. So it's um, eye movement, um, rapid, EM, eye movement. So it's basically you're training your eye to move um, as the therapist moves his finger around. And as you're telling him your experience, you're focusing on his finger. So when you remember the traumatic experience that you experienced. You're not associating to that memory, but you're associating with the finger or whatever object they're moving on. They're making your eye move and disassociate from that. And it's been used even in a Christian church. It, it's, and I don't know how much of that is true, but they say this is the most, the highest rate recovery and, and for people I'm not kidding. <laughs> it's, it, it sounds ridiculous as we think about it, but um, and could it be that it, there are advantages to that? I don't know. Scientifically, it hasn't been proved. It's just people saying, I feel better, in the same way that some that take medication say, I feel better when they do this. Um, and so some people might experience improvement, but what is really, uh, what is the issue with that? Because I'm, I'm basically saying that whatever traumatic experience and whatever thing that you went through, it's purely an organic thing. It's purely something that just affected your body. And by just retraining your brain to think about that differently, you'll be able to solve that. And where is that, our identity in Christ? Where is that that I am going to trust that God make all things work together for those who love him? And where is that that God did care that he is righteous, that one day he will bring every evil to be punished? None of that is brought up in, in, in EMDR. And, and that's the concern that I have. It's when people are trying to just deal with this at a purely physical level. And then that's where um, 
Dr. Keith uh, brings it out here, recognize counterfeit, counterfeit Christs and turn away from them. Um, Proverbs 28, 26, um, it says here, He who trusts his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. People that uh, go through trauma and um, difficult situations, they will experience those things, and they will try to find solutions themselves to make them feel in control, but ultimately do not transform their hearts. I'm just going to put up a lot of boundaries in my life, and I'm not going to let people get too close to me. Well, where is that love your neighbor as yourself? I mean, yes, I understand that you've got to protect yourself from danger, and we'll touch on this. But now that you don't let anyone to know you and you to know anyone, this whole thing of boundaries or assertiveness, I just need to assert myself more. Or self-protective means, manipulation, to try to fight manipulation with more manipulation. Uh, they're false refuges that make me feel better for a moment, but are destructive. Addictions. People might seek, might seek drugs, might seek alcohol or different forms to deal with that. Shopping, food, entertainment, drugs, medications, cutting, sexual sin, overindulging uh, in relationships. So all sorts of counterfeits, Christ's counterfeit solutions that people might find in dealing with that. And then um, the warning that he gives here, don't settle for a counterfeit psychological gospel. This was a term, I think, um, it was um, David Paulison that first uh, brought, kind of put in these terms. But it's really what you, you hear in a lot of churches today. It's a whole thing about self, right? Hope is found in esteeming myself. I just have to love myself more, first and foremost. But the gospel says, hope is found in esteeming Jesus. The psychological gospel says, hope is found in valuing myself. The gospel, the true gospel says, is found in valuing Jesus. Hope is found in loving myself more. But the gospel says, it's found in loving Jesus. Hope is found in finding myself. I just self-actualization. I just have to get to a point where I really know my true self. Hope is found in losing our self, our old self, and finding new life and a new creation in Christ Jesus. Hope is found in God making much of me. The gospel says hope is found in making much of Jesus. See, they say Jesus died to demonstrate my worth. Hope is found in a positive self-identity, and the chief end of God is to glorify man. It's to put me, to make me feel better. But the gospel says Jesus died to demonstrate his own worth, his own holiness, and his love for us. Hope is found through my identity in Jesus, and the chief end of man is to glorify God. Uh, one of the things that I appreciate about uh, Jeremy Pierre and his discussions is that he likes using the term overcomer for, for the believer, because this is what the Bible calls us, that in Christ we're more than conquerors, right? We're overcomers. We're not marred for whatever circumstance that happened to us. Yes, they're significant, they're hurtful, they're hard to forget, um, difficult to navigate, but yet our identity doesn't need to be 
but on those terms. You know, I'm not going to just hear a quick comment that I'll, I'll get back to you. Uh, remember Naomi? Um, and obviously, we don't know if she suffered abuse or anything from her husband, but she did go through a lot of suffering. After all that she went through, what did she say? Call me Mara. This now is my identity. This happened to me, this suffering, this awful circumstance now defines me as a person so much so that I want you to call me bitter because this is who I am. I'm just a bitter person. And so many times that's what happens with people that have come through the, uh, this thing and thinking on a, on a victim level. I'm always going to be marred by this. Dylan. Yeah, yeah. And, and how much more you appreciate your God, right? I think about um, the people of uh, Israel being oppressed in Egypt. I, I always thought every time I read Exodus and I, I get through that first chapter and it says that the Lord saw their plight he saw it, and it was just not like, okay, he's just there watching. No, he cared about it, and he was going to do something about it. The Lord sees those scenarios. He understands the depth and the hurt that this is not how I intended this world to go. But since Genesis, you see that the purpose in the hearts of men were wicked, right? So I think about Second Corinthians 5, verse 16 and 17 when I'm helping someone to think through who they are in Christ. Therefore, now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. When we are, and this is verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the the he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now that you are a new creature, you are a creation, a new creation in Christ, everything is changing. Your perception of life, the way that you're going to look at that past traumatic event is totally different than someone that doesn't know Christ. It is different than someone that look at this world with purely fleshly eyes, eyes of humans. <laughs> but the Lord has given us a new mind, has given us a new way, a new outlook of understanding the world around us. And so this is um, an encouragement. All right, now, before we close here, I do want to give for some practical instructions, and I think we have talked about this, but it is good for us to just lay that out there. Um, how we as a church, we, we tell people, where is God in the abuse, right? That, that's a question that always comes, what, what, what is he doing? When you can't walk in, he do. Um, the first one that I say here is that God cares for the oppressed. God cares for the oppressed. He gives them justice and rescues them from the hand of the wicked. Let's open our Bibles on Psalm. I'm going to do some sword drill here real quick on this text. Psalm 82, 3 and 4. 
Asaph is praying and saying, Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Why is that that the psalmist is praying these things? Because he's confident that God does that. That's what Hannah saying, right? When she had Samuel, that the Lord raises up the destitute. He vindicates the oppressed. This is his nature. Isaiah chapter 45 Chapter 45, and looking at verse 11 and 13. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, his maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created men upon it. I stretched, stretched out of he heavens with my hands, and I ordained all that is lost. I have aroused him in righteousness, and I'll make his ways smooth, and he will bid my, build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. When we think about how the Lord restored Israel, right, from Babylon and the captivity and all of that, and then we think about how Christ came to deliver the exiles, those that were enslaved to their sin, like you and me, and also have given us salvation and a new life in Christ. So he is the safe place that we run to when we are in danger. Because here's, here's something. I know that this is kind of a, a loomy thought, right? We do, one of the things that I'm going to talk about here is that we need to flee from danger. But we can try every time to flee from danger, but there are circumstances that are beyond us that we can't control. You, you, you might put all these security measures, and yet there are things that are beyond your control that you cannot prevent them from happening. Now, I, I don't want to give that counsel to say just be okay with it. Do, there are more passages <laughs> that we're going to look at. But there are things that are beyond our control. And we just need to trust the Lord God. Are you going to be with us? I mean, people did pray, didn't they, when, when they were um, martyred in Rome. They prayed to the Lord for her deliverance. And yet a lion came and devoured them. And so there are things that are beyond our control that we can't prevent. But we can rest assured that God does listen and he is our shelter. So Psalm 37 Psalm 37, uh, 39 and 40. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, and he is their strength in time of trouble. This is beyond me. I cannot, I don't know how I'm going to endure this, but he is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them. And delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. I've heard many stories of, you know, drunk husbands that have been beating their wives and all of a sudden they 
you know, tragic stories of slipping, hitting their head and dying right then and there when they were trying to abuse their spouses. The Lord is in control. He, could he interfere? He could. And it's not, not praying that people will die, right? But uh, we realize that he has a plan and he will deliver if this is his will. The Lord also cares deeply for the children. Uh, we know that, remember that from Jesus' interaction with children, so much so that he calls the little children who were slaughtered by their parents in the Old Testament, my children. Ezekiel 16.21 talks about people making sac- child sacrifices. And the Lord is vindicating them, saying, they are my children, and I am going to punish them for this. The Lord will vindicate children. Then B, I think is the most practical, I think, for us here, is God has provided means of protection for the oppressed. He provided believers being oppressed with the safeguard of their faith family, the church, and their local shepherds who watches over them. So we have, you know, those references here. We not, let's open at least 1 Peter 5. Um, 1 Peter 5. You know, Paul, when he talks about the people that he spent time with tears caring for them, that involves some of these things. Pastoring also means caring for them and providing a way. So Proverbs, uh, 1 Peter 5, 1. Um, three says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God who is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording over them over those allotted to their charge, but proving to be examples of to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Why? Because they care. They, t- they, they watch over their souls. Not only their souls, but their body and everything. So we care for our sheep, and we, we do care that they are protected. So I say here the church is, should take steps to help when sin is involved, right? Matthew 18, we discussed yesterday in our membership class about church discipline. If there's someone in church that is involved in this, they need to be um, church disciplined. The elders will have some teeth to that um, accountability, what is going on here, and we're going to find ways to protect the spouse and the children. And also, God has additionally provided local authorities to provide protection and execute justice when things escalate. Romans 13, we are subject to local authorities. So if you hear of child abuse, you don't, you don't even question it. You have to report. I mean, knowing your source, obviously. <laughs> um, you, you, they, you let them investigate. But then you're thinking about um, more... Um, dangerous situations, sometimes the pastor will have. Uh, maybe the wife doesn't feel safe, especially when they leave these environments. They are the most, they're the most at risk because they want to repay or 
have a revenge for that. So the pastoral staff should be in close contact even in dealing with local authorities. And then lastly here, um, God has provided the oppressed with clear instructions. Utilize discernment to flee when there is imminent and clear danger for your life and your children. Proverbs 27, 12 says that the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple goes on and suffers for it. Um, it is not wrong to get someone with imminent life danger out of the place of harm. Examples, Jesus walked himself out of being stoned by the, the, the religious leaders. Right? He just walked himself out of it. He saw the danger and he walked out of it. The Apostle Paul, is, when his life was in danger, he escaped for his life in Damascus. The church helped him to get out <laughs> through a basket in the, the city wall. So pastoral staff is in close contact to the oppressed ones, available to reassess and help if things escalate if they, there is an imminent danger, providing shelter and wise counsel for decisions moving forward. All right? And much more could be said, right? If one here, God never intended for his children to act and react out of fear. Uh, the fear of man is an ensnarement. Our first attitude should be fearing the Lord and trusting him even when we are afraid by casting our anxieties on him. He is the one that can both kill the soul and the body. If that person doesn't know the Lord yet, he, they need to realize that they need first and foremost forgiveness and a new life in Christ. All right? And then lastly, acknowledging that God will not exempt us from trouble. He will supply all the need during the time of trouble. That doesn't mean necessarily that every outcome will be as we planned. Um, even though we might take the precautions. All right, let's pray. I'm going over time here. Gracious Father, thank you for um, your words that minister grace and mercy to those who are oppressed, that offer an identity in Christ, an identity of an overcomer, an identity of a new creation with old things passing away and new things coming. Lord, then redirecting all the ways that we look around to this world. Lord, I pray that you would encourage our brothers and sisters to be uh, wise as serpents um, as we have interactions in this world when we think about trauma and abuse. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name, amen.